0: The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time.
1: At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect.
2: We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide.
0: At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company.
2: When most separate, we gather, across color, creed, and ideology.
0: Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly.
3: Welcome to Village Square Cast. this is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. This episode gets its name from a book with the same title, written by social psychologist Dr. Jonathan Haidt. He's today's guest, and he offers a riveting explanation for the deep partisan divide we see today in American politics. And here's the interesting thing. This is a throwback episode from the program that aired eight years ago on September 11, 2012, and it's really incredible how relevant the talk is today. In fact, I sat down with Liz Joyner, Village Square's executive director, last week for a little mini-interview to get an update on John's work and to discuss how important his moral foundations theory is in understanding the state of politics today. Liz gives us insight into how John was studying and talking about this, even before our divisiveness got to the troubling level it is today. So first, we're going to chat with Liz for just a minute, and then we'll hear John's talk. And in the next episode of the Village Squarecast, we're going to air the Q&A portion of this event, which also includes some really interesting reflections from audience members, and we'll hear a little more of our recent discussion with Liz in that episode too. So, find that up next on the Village Squarecast. Now, let's chat with Liz Joyner before we turn you over to Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Hi, Liz. How are you today? Hi, Vanessa. I'm great. How about you? So glad to be chatting with you again, and particularly on this subject. So excited to talk to you about Dr. Jonathan Haidt. I'm a fangirl. I can tell just in and the way I've heard you talk about him in the past. He seems remarkable and you guys seem like you have a good relationship. So can you start with just telling us a little bit about who he is and then what's his involvement with the Village Square? So John is a moral psychologist and we first
1: met him little bit ahead of his uh, publishing his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he formerly was at UVA and he came down to see us in 2012. Actually, I had forgotten that the event was on September 11th. and, And we did that intentionally because we thought it was an important night to talk. And uh, John now is at NYU Stern School of Business, and since uh, we've started working together, r- really, I would say that we consider ourselves uh, a lab school for his moral foundations theory and and so that that has been something that's changed we, we've we become very intentional about using his science and his learnings to bring people together across division and then uh, another thing that's happened that's been fairly major is that he has started an organization called heterodox academy and um, his mission with that organization that we've worked with from really before the beginning is to bring idea of diversity back onto college campuses. And to be honest, before we did work on college campuses, I wouldn't have known it was missing, but it but it is. So in so in some ways Heterodox Academy is is, you know, it has the same mission as the Village Square does, uh, but but on college campuses across the country.
3: That is so interesting and kind of leads to a question that I have for you, when John talks about the village square in this interview he really talks says some absolutely wonderful things just about what the village square does and you know there needs to be more of this kind of thing and he almost talks about it as if it's unusual do you get that sense from him that he doesn't see this often um yes
1: it is unusual unfortunately and i and i think some of that comes from in some ways our founding story um, made it so that we accidentally did the right thing. It wasn't on purpose; um, it was accidental. But it, it's very—it's very tied up in his moral foundations theory and his academic understanding of the divisions that we have. And um, much of it is about the idea that relationships have to come first if we are to cross these, you know, deep deep cultural divides. And I think it's a really kind of normal error to make to think that the first thing that you need to do is you need to drill down on policy and have a, uh, have a debate about what policies are right and then somehow come to some sort of white paper, et cetera. And it isn't that that isn't a valuable thing to do. It's it's just that it's it's the more typical thing to do, and uh, what John's work demonstrates really profoundly to us, both in both in terms of just our our initial uh, understanding of it, and then also now in the you know ten years really that we've been intentionally using his thinking and his theories, it has proven to be both explanatory and predictive. So over and over and over again, it's proven itself. Inside the context of of what we understand and what we see in our work, it's interesting because in this, it was fun to re-listen to this because it's, so much has happened. And he talks about, well, you know, hey, that's these are my theories, and but we don't we don't really know in practice, so we're kind of asking you, does it work? And and my answer to him after these eight years is yes, it it really does. And and I think I think there are very few organizations that have implemented that different way of of seeing things. When I'm explaining the village square to audiences, I very often have an illustration that is uh, by a, a British cartoonist named William Eli Hill, and it is both depending on your perspective, it's a illustration of an older woman and a younger woman in one. And you just have to shift kind of the way that you're looking at it. And all of a sudden, the other one will pop out of the screen for you. And I think that the sort of the difference between undertaking building bridges as a relationship focused, intuitive enterprise, and a, a rationalistic, informational enterprise is that kind of dichotomy. And I, and I think once you see it, it's like, it, it creates all these just amazing avenues for addressing the problem. And and what we found is uh, very successful avenues that, that you're really doing the right thing finally. Uh, and, and it really is uh, John's work that has led us to that understanding.
3: Fantastic. And again, I'm just I'm so impressed with the work that you guys have been doing all, all these all these years and really thinking back to this program was, I think, in 2012, and it, it could be as if he was talking about it yesterday, although he's published another book since then. And I thought that was very interesting, too. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And I am intrigued just at the title. This is something that I think about a lot just in terms of, you know, there are a lot of changes to the way that children are raised these days. And um, how, what do we know about if that is that going to be good, bad, some of both, you know, and so it's something that I think about a lot and just really can't wait to dig into that one as well. I I highly recommend
1: his work in this area, and that includes an Atlantic cover piece that was written when my daughter was a college freshman at UNC, which is my alma mater, and I think it was kind of new information to me then. I, I I had a little bit of a sense of it. But really since then, um, the shift on American college campuses has been extraordinary. And John's thesis is it's it's explained by, you know, so, some of the way some of what the differences in the ways that we have raised children and it, it really is a an important conversation to have right now, especially now with sort of the ascendance of the conversation on cancel culture. And it is it's important because the idea that that ideas are harm flies in the face of the basic tenets of uh, of really what we've been talking about, right? Because if you can't if you can't be together with people who have ideas who are differently different than yours, who can't see into your blind spots, then you're not doing good reasoning together. So, so I highly recommend that as well. And I I guess the other thing, you know, I'd like to share about John, it's interesting because listening to his, this program again, after eight years, a lot of it, he explains things that now we are so familiar with, right? He was, but then it it was like, it was just taking shape. And we were just beginning to understand the nature of our deep division. And uh, I I really see him as being a, a real Sherpa. he, he has shined light into a lot of places that we didn't understand before, and I I just really um, think he's, he's gotten very famous, and, and sometimes people, I guess when you get famous now, sometimes people like to dislike you, and I would just really strongly invite people to suspend disbelief for a little while and re- read and think some along with John and it is it, it will change uh, your views in a really good way that might just save the world. And I also want to say he's a hero because he works so hard and uh, there has never been a moment that That I needed something from him that that he didn't make sure that that I had it and I think that he does that for groups that do our work across not just the country but the world so thanks John
3: that's fantastic well with that I think we should let the listeners hear from John sounds just right we're so glad you joined
1: us tonight if I could get your attention, and actually this time I'd like to keep it for a little while. Thank you, Lori Dozier. He's the sergeant at arms. We're so glad that you're here tonight. My name is Liz Joyner. I'm the executive director of the Village Square.
0: And I'm Bill Maddox. I'm a member of the board of directors here at the Village Square.
1: This program tonight comes straight from our heart. We have been working in Tallahassee in our own little corner of the world to try to bridge the partisan divide for six years now. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Heights' work has served as an inspiration to us since we learned about what he's doing, and it also offers hope that by this simple act of joining each other, eating together, that it actually makes a difference.
0: I don't know that there's ever been a Village Square meeting that has been as eagerly anticipated as this one. John Hyde is a um, just great speaker, great author. Many of you have had an opportunity to read his book. If you haven't, I encourage you to get one before the night is out. I spent the summer working through a book club with a bunch of 20-somethings from across the political spectrum, and we had a great deal of fun. In fact, several of them are here tonight. Um, if you don't know him, John Hyde is a professor at, the, at NYU in New York, has previously been a professor at the University of Virginia is a psychologist who specializes in moral psychology and, uh, as I mentioned, has written uh, The Righteous Mind. He's going to be talking tonight about what on earth is happening to us, polarization, demonization, and paralysis in American politics. And if all of that hasn't yet convinced you that you're about to hear a stellar speaker, let me mention to you something that one of our Teen Square kids rec- uh, uh, recognized earlier tonight. John has recently made an appearance on The Colbert Show. So, I I think we should all give it up now for John Hyde.
2: Good evening. Thank you for uh, coming out tonight. To cut to the chase, uh, our problems are serious, but this is just the sort of thing that really can make a difference. Uh, A theme of tonight's talk is going to be that uh, relationships come first. Relationships open hearts, and open hearts open minds. So this sort of activity—simply coming together to share food with our fellow citizens who share the sense that there's a problem—that is three steps on the road to solution. Uh, Liz, actually, I can't remember, Liz, whether you contacted. Uh, how did we meet? You contacted me first. This, we, we just met for the first time today. Uh, today, but yeah. So, Liz, so. <laughs> Liz has been trying to get me to come down here for about two years, uh, and my answer kept being, no, I've got to write the book, and I have two little kids, so I'm not leaving my office except to go home and play with my kids. Um, and, well, the book is done. Uh, my, my two-year-old just started her first day of school uh, today, and so she's thrilled. So that frees me up to come down here uh, and talk with you. And um, as was said in the opening uh, prayer, it is particularly uh, uh, relevant that we are meeting today on September 11th, uh, the last time that we truly came together as a nation. Uh, it is possible, but it happens under special circumstances. And, uh, and remembrances like this are particularly good times to open all of our collective hearts and therefore minds. So let's begin. So uh, tonight I have some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? No, no, the joke only works if you say the good news was. Try it again. (laughs) Which do you want first? Okay. So here's the good news. In the big picture, things are fantastic. Uh, This is uh, a graph of uh, wealth in the world since the year zero. And what you will notice is that uh, all over the world, in all the different regions... Uh wealth per capita was around four hundred dollars uh, at the time of Christ, and then it goes up uh you know in the Middle Ages and, and uh, the 18th century goes up to like five or six hundred dollars a person per year you know, per year per person. Um and then something happens. Uh, uh Europeans invent capitalism and then they get the industrial revolution, and bang, look at this. The United States average per capita income skyrockets and Europe, and then uh, down here is, uh, that's Eastern Europe, then Japan, China, India, they're still down there. Um, but wow, look how well the U.S. did in just a short time, generating all that wealth. Now, if that isn't the most amazing graph you've ever seen, my apologies to those of you listening on the radio, um, well, that's just until 1950. That's the progress made until 1950. What happened in the mere 50 years after? Bang. Bang. And if you are not amazed by the the amount of wealth that we have generated, which generates not just frivolous stuff, but generates a vast middle class, lifts people out of poverty. If you spent your childhood wishing for world peace and an end to world poverty, it's coming. It's fast on the way. My God, this is fantastic news. And if somebody redoes this graph in 20 years, China and India are going to be right up there too. So, wow. Democracy is ascendant. Democracy is wiping out authoritarian regimes all over the world. This top line is the rise of democracies. Now, in these future graphs, I've put a green circle around the years since about 1980. That's the period we're going to focus on, because it's between then and now that a lot has happened to us politically. So just to show you how incredibly good this has been for the world... Uh, democracy is triumphant. Genocide has almost disappeared after quite a run in the 20th century. Uh, rape and homicide are plummeting. Rape is down 75% in the U.S. in just the last few decades. Crime is almost vanishing. Wow! Things are good! Um, racism has plummeted. Of course it's not disappeared, but, the, but the, the degree to which people endorse overtly racist attitudes is getting down near zero. Oh, remember that nuclear war thing? Those of you who are my age or older, remember how it seemed kind of unlikely that we were going to go 50 or 100 years without a nuclear war? Remember that? God, that was so long ago. That's gone. No risk of nuclear war. Yes, there could be a a warhead going off somewhere in the world, but there is almost no chance that we're going to wipe ourselves out with a nuclear war. Why? Because we won. We won the Cold War. We defeated fascism. We defeated communism. We won the Cold War. My God, things are good. We should all be dancing in the streets. How many of you woke up today saying, my God, things are good? (laughs) Really? Oh, you, you didn't? Well, hmm. Okay, as a psychologist, I think I can explain why you haven't noticed this. The reason is because happiness is actually relative. That is, we feel really good when we're doing better than others. And in the post-war period, boy, were we doing well. And the rest of the world wasn't. And, of course, we want the rest of the world to do well. We want China and India and the third world to rise. So this is all good news. But relative to the rest of the world, we're going down and they're going up. It doesn't feel so good. Um, Happiness is also relative Temporally, that is, in time. Um, our trajectory in some ways is still up, but in some ways has been down over the last five or ten years, and that doesn't feel good. So I understand why you're not dancing in the streets, but at least rationally, cognitively, somewhere in your mind, I hope you'll go with me in saying, in the big picture, things are unbelievably good, and if we could have gone back to 1950 and guessed at how good things could be today, we would never have guessed they'd be as good today. So little crime, so little risk of war. It's unbelievable. All right, um, but yet it doesn't feel that way. It actually feels more like this, that something's gone wrong. For those of you on the radio, this is the scene from Thelma and Louise where they drive off a cliff. <laughs> and Welcome to part two the bad news. Um, okay, so what is, uh, what is going wrong? The rest of my talk today is about the bad news, uh, but as I was writing the talk and listing all this bad news, I thought, that's too depressing. I better at least open with how incredibly good things are in the big picture. Right now... Back to the bad news. Okay, so I'm going to explain what's happened to us, or at least illustrate what has happened to us since 1980 in three graphs. These are three graphs that tell our story, tell why there are groups like the Village Square, why there's a need for them. Here's graph one. This is a really incredible graph. So some political scientists uh, developed a way of quantifying uh, the degree to which knowing where a legislator is on the left-right spectrum uh, predicts their votes, and at various times in, in, a, in the 20th century, if you knew how liberal or conservative uh, a person was, you could tell how they would vote. Um, if we go back to the 30s and 40s, polarization in Congress is relatively low. That is, people are not locked into voting uh, for their party. Bottom line is, when it's low, people can cross over. When it's high, uh, if you know their party, actually. If you know their party, you know how they voted. So there's not much independence anymore. And obviously what you see here is that things are drifting up, but then we hit this period around 1980, they start shooting up and they keep shooting up. Uh, the good news is that the House in particular can't get much worse because it's about as bad as it can be mathematically already. Um, so that's pretty stunning how bad things have gotten if you, uh, in terms of polarization in Congress. But here's a surprising thing. If we go back before the 30s, here's what we see things were almost as bad in the late 19th century. These were the decades after the Civil War and they were even worse before the Civil War and during the Civil War. So things have been this bad before. Mathematically, they've been almost this bad, not quite this bad, but they were bad in the 19th century. And then they temporarily got good. And the reasons why that got good are complicated, but I'll get to them in a moment. I want to make the point that this period here, we all look back on, because this is what the older people among us remember, that there was a time when bipartisanship was common, when the parties could work together, when there were frequent friendships across the party lines. Uh, that was a temporary aberration. We probably will never get back to that level, but I don't think we need to be up at this level. All right, that's graph one. Now, many people think that, oh, it's just uh, uh, Congress which is so polarized. Um, many political scientists think that the public is not really getting polarized, that it's an illusion, a statistical illusion, that it's just the, the elites that are getting polarized. But that's not true. Here's graph number two. Uh, the American National Election Survey has included a question since the 1970s about how warm you feel, how warm versus cold you feel towards various groups in society, towards African-Americans, towards immigrants, towards the Republican Party, towards the Democratic Party. And uh, what you see is that when you break this up by people's own party, how do so the blue line is uh, how Democrats feel towards Democrats, and on a scale of 0 to 100, they like them. Democrats like Democrats, and they always have. Republicans like Republicans, and they always have. So that's not interesting. What's interesting is how do they feel about the other party? And of course, they don't like them as much, obviously. What's interesting is that back in the 70s, um, they liked them less, but it was in the 40s. And then it drifts downwards slowly up to the Clinton years. But during the Clinton years, something changes. Some, during the 90s, something changes. And look where we are. So it's really plummeted. This is not Congress. This is a representative sample of Americans surveyed every four years. They increasingly dislike the other party and the people in the other party. So it's not just Congress, it's us. We're getting more polarized. We dislike each other more. All right? So if Congress is more polarized, the people are more polarized, what do the people think about government? Back in the 60s, and this is this is true since the Second World War, and uh, so in the 60s, America pulled together, uh, the government uh, worked, fought the war, uh, defeated Hitler, um, Sorry, the government didn't defeat Hitler, but the point is, that you know, America defeated Hitler. Trust in government was very, very high. Now, the the numbers only go back this far. The question wasn't asked before Johnson. But what you see here, there are three features I want to uh, point to especially. One is clearly trust plummeted between Johnson uh, and then Nixon and Ford. And, of course, that's Watergate, Vietnam, all kinds of of tumult and and, uh, uh, crisis in America. So trust in government plummet. That's the first feature. The second feature is that there's not really an obvious party difference in the average. Uh, you'll note that the red line for Republicans and the blue line for Democrats on average is very similar. What's different is the variance. In other words, Democrats hold pretty steady. Um, they trust government. Oh, the way this works is there, you have three options. How much, to what degree do you trust the government in Washington to do the right thing? Uh, most are all of the time. Well, let me, let me get this exact the wording is as follows just about always or most of the time or only some of the time so this shows the percent who said either just about always or most of the time in other words you basically trust the government so it plummets but it holds steady uh, at around 30% which is pretty bad but 30 to 35% for de- uh, for democrats note that the republicans vary depending on who's in office. So for Republicans, if their guy is in control, they trust the government more. And if the other guy is in control, they trust the government less. But the average is not different until very recently. Now, of course, uh, during the Iraq War and after 9-11, Republicans, their trust in government shoots way up, actually, the highest it's been in 30 years under George Bush. Um, and so you might guess that when Obama comes in, of course, it's going to go down. And you might guess, because things are more polarized, it's probably going to go down below where it was under Clinton. It's probably going to go down to, what, maybe 25. Maybe it'll be the lowest ever. Maybe it'll go down even lower. But you would never guess that it's going to go down to five. Five percent of Republicans trust the government. Five percent. That has never happened before. That's not just the Tea Party. That's 95 percent of Republicans do not trust the government. And the Tea Party is simply the most visible manifestation of it. Um, So this is a big problem. And if you wonder why we can't compromise and why uh, political scientists and many others are saying the Republicans are more intransigent, it is true. The Republicans are more opposed to compromise. This is why. And we have to understand what happened. Okay, so those are the three graphs. Now, why have things gotten so bad? What has been changing in the last 20 or 30 years that has led us to this point? Uh, There are about 10 or 15 features. I'm just going to talk about three or four primarily, but there's a lot of things that have been happening since the Second World War. By far the most important, the political scientists agree, is the party realignment. Now, uh, how did uh, the party of Lincoln become the party of Bush, and how did the party of Douglas become the party of Obama? And there's all kinds of mix-ups and, and crossovers. It really is not clear what, you know, uh, the ancestry of these parties is bizarre. There's all kinds of mixing up and matching and, and switching going on over the last 100, 150 years. Uh, so just for fun, I, I I copied out the maps. This was a really interesting exercise, and I'll illustrate it to you if I go pretty quickly. It's kind of cool. So here's the electoral map from 1860. And the point I want to make primarily is that the Democrats have always been a southern party. Uh, the Republicans have had their base in the north, especially the northeast and the west coast, actually. We're always Republican. Uh, and these are not ideological differences. Party coalition parties were always coalitions of interest groups, regions, industries, uh, agrarian versus uh, industrial, uh, uh, you know, Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic immigrants versus Protestants. There are all these identity groups uh, and interest groups. But it was not ideology. It was not moral values primarily. So, the, note, the South is, a, is obviously solid, uh, Democrat, and if you go through the Civil War, it's gonna be a heck of a long time before the South votes for the Republicans again. So, just a couple of elections. Here's, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and this, you know, this, um, is, uh, sort of the opposite of what, you know, this is, of what we have today. That, wow, the South is all Democrat, and the Northeast and the West Coast are all Republican. And 1924 is, uh, you know, uh, Coolidge, and, uh, here's Eisenhower. And again, so it's not surprising that, you know, the South is all, Democrat. You know you're 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 Floridians, so you know this. Uh and then uh what happens? Here's Kennedy. Again, the power base is of the parties in the South and New England and the West Coast is mostly Republican. Uh then comes the pivotal moment which set all the dominoes moving, rearranged all the pieces of the puzzle, which is of course Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act. And as he famously said to Bill Moyers on that day, um Moyers came in and congratulated him on this incredible victory. And, and Johnson is, you know, woe is me, this is a, you know, he's, he's got a headache, he's tired. He says, we've just turned over the South to the Republicans for the rest of my life and yours. And he was basically right, uh, if, especially if you look at the very next election. It's a mirror image. I mean, the whole country flips. Suddenly, the South votes solidly uh, Republican, and the rest of the country votes Democrat. Now, obviously, the Kennedy assassination had a lot to do with that as well, but things flip instantly. Then they kind of jump around, and that's Wallace there uh, um, uh, taking away votes. And then there's the Nixon landslide, and there's Carter. So now we're back to what we had before. Uh, the South is Democrat, and most of the rest of the country is, is Republican. Uh, but here's where things begin to change. It really is when Ronald Reagan came in. It's not that this is his fault, it's that He was the first one who was really able to capitalize on the tectonic plate set in motion by the Civil Rights Act. And Nixon began it appealing to whites, especially on social issues. Uh, But Reagan really put the modern Republican coalition into place, a brand-new coalition which was much more based on ideology than on coalitions of interest groups. So the Republicans get their story straight, they get their moral platform organized, and now things really begin to move. Um, Of course, landslides, especially in '84. Bush uh, wins most of the country, too. Now, for the first time, we see the West Coast, the Northwest, is going Democrat, uh, but New England is still mostly Republican. And now, finally, we have our modern arrangement. That is, the Northeast and the West Coast are now the liberal parts, and now they're voting Democrat. And the South is mostly Republican now, although Clinton, being a southerner, got some southern states. Um, And now, finally, this is it. This is where we're stuck. So here's 2000, and note, it barely changes. 2000, 2004, 2008. It doesn't really change much. Because now we've got not coalitions of interest groups. We've got pure ideology. We've got, for the first time in our history, all the liberals are in one party. All the conservatives are in another. And this is very dangerous, because when the other side is defined not by its material interests but by its moral values, then it's obvious that they're evil, because their morals are so totally different from ours. So this is the major cause. This is the major cause of what's happened to us. And in a sense, it had to happen. It was kind of unnatural that the South was had a lot of conservative Democrats. So it was inevitable. Uh, but this is the main situation. And of course, this cannot be reversed, nor, nor should it be reversed. Uh, but as that's happening. But we also have it coinciding with a generational change. And uh, the greatest generation, so it sometimes is said that if you want to understand a man's worldview, you have to look at how the world looked to him when he was 20. For anybody who remembers the Second World War, they were profoundly shaped by this. The country came together to fight the ultimate evil, um, and then it continued to fight communism. And and as I said, we won. Then the baby boomers come along, and how does the world look to them when they're 20? For those on the left, it's full of racist laws and and an unjust, horrible war. So the baby boom generation, their founding experience is actually dividing to fight each other. It's not coming together. Just to illustrate this with one uh, pair of anecdotes, in 1961, uh, John Wayne, who was a Republican, was asked uh, uh, what he thought about the election of President Kennedy, and he said, I may not have voted for him, but he's my president, and I hope he does a good job. He was born in 1907. Um, Fast forward to uh, 2009. Rush Limbaugh is asked by a newspaper to contribute up to 400 words about his hopes for the Obama presidency. He declines the offer, but on his radio show he says, he says, I don't need 400 words, I need four words. I hope he fails. So something changed. Obviously this is an anecdote, but the point is, something changed in the idea of, okay, if he's the president, he's our president, We're all in this together. Uh, We we come together to fight external enemies. Uh, Something changed, and the generational change is a big part of it. That coincides with this shuffling of the partisan dominoes. Where you see this most clearly is in the ability of the uh, the frequency and warmth of cross-party friendships in Washington. So as is widely known, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan were on very friendly terms. They could drink together. Often they were both very jovial men. They were old-time politicians, and they were members of that greatest generation. Now, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton did not like each other. They are the first baby boomers. But the culture in Washington still allowed them to work together. It made it not just possible, there were still some people around, there were still some pressures to reach some compromise. And here we are today, rather different facial expressions. Uh, Things have changed, the people have changed, the culture has changed. It's just much harder to have friendships across party lines. Also coincident with this, we had this temporary time in America where there were three television networks. Prior to that, prior to electricity, people got their news from newspapers, there were thousands of them, and they were partisan But then we go through this temporary period where everybody's getting the news from the same source. Of course that's temporary, it can't last. And now there are a thousand sources and many of them are polarized, many of them just confirm what you want to believe. So this all, remember, these things, these changes are all happening at the same time and they're all pointing in the same direction. They're all breaking up this temporary period of national unity. At the same time, wealth is rising, suburbs are booming, people move, uh, the interstates are now there, you can move around a lot, you don't have to live where your parents lived. So as you've you heard in this group, you've heard from Bill Bishop, uh, he wrote this wonderful book, The Big Sort, and people are beginning to se- separate themselves into uh, lifestyle enclaves. As some call it, and if you live in a certain way and you shop at organic food stores, you know all that sort of stuff, you're going to vote. You're going to be around people who are liberal and going to vote for the Democrats, uh, and likewise on the on the conservative side. So the this the whole society is changing. The generations are changing. One place where we really can point a finger and uh, and there are these are the first changes that I'm showing you that we could actually undo. When Newt Gingrich comes in, he wants revenge. Now I don't really blame him in the sense that. The, Republi- the, the Democrats controlled Congress for decades and decades, and they treated the Republicans badly. So it's not like he just comes in and breaks up this lovely little thing called Congress. But, you know, he's mad. He wants a much more combative Congress. When he, when he engineers this Republican revolution in 1994, comes in in 1995, he makes a bunch of changes that really make it harder for them to like each other, to see each other. If relationships are the key, Gingrich was the relationship killer. He comes in. One of his changes was that uh, uh, chairmen of committees are not appointed by seniority anymore. They are appointed by the party leadership, which means only the party loyalists, not the old guys who have good connections with everybody, but the most ideologically pure people get to run the committees, and then they run it the way the leadership wants. So it's much more combative, much more polarized. The minority party is much more shut out Therefore, they have much more incentive to fight like hell to get back in. Um, He changes the legislative calendar. This is very important. Uh, Most of these folks used to live in Washington and know each other. Their children went to the same schools. Their spouses served on charitable committees together. They were tied together. Relationships open hearts and open hearts open minds. Well, that all ended in the 90s. And so this is in the House, what happens in the Senate. I just uh, last week came across an article proving that part of the reason the Senate got so much more polarized is that a lot of senators had been House members. So Gingrich's changes and culture filtered up to the Senate as well, and then out to the Supreme Court, and out to every place. So these are some changes. I think we can point a finger at Newt Gingrich for this. Uh, again, I understand why he did it. It's not that he's just an evil man. You, know, if you have to understand where he was and what was going on. But um, it really it's responsible for some of the acceleration of those curves that you saw. Um, there are many, many other causes I don't have time to go into them all tonight but uh, there are a lot of reasons why things are getting worse now, most of them cannot be reversed I I told you just a few of them um, so we can't reverse these changes Uh, therefore, polarization is here to stay we are going to be polarized for the rest of our lives but we can still make the best of it there's a lot we can do to tone it down a little bit and then to make it less destructive that's what I'm going to talk about next Uh, There's a lot of wonderful books coming out in the last couple of years from political scientists. Here's a really good one uh, by uh, Alan Abramowitz. Um, Abramowitz, this is a very important quote, I think. He says, the traditional bipartisan approach in which public policy is based on compromise between key leaders in in both major parties now appears to be almost dead. The question is what will replace the politics of bipartisan compromise? Because that's a temporary period that we went through. And he says, I will argue that the only realistic alternative to, con- to continued gridlock in Washington is not a revival of bipartisanship. We can't turn back the clock and go back to the days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan having a, having a drink together. Um, he says, we're going to need an American version of responsible party government, which means like a parliamentary system where whoever wins the election gets to implement their program and then they can be held responsible for it. That's what that means. Uh, He says, um, I will also argue that responsible party government cannot work without some fundamental reforms, especially ending the filibuster in the Senate. So... There's no reason why the filibuster is even allowed. I mean, it's kind of craziness. and It is vastly abused uh, by both sides, more so by the Republicans, according to Ornstein and others. But it's abused by both sides. No, it, it's a really destructive uh, thing. It causes a lot of gridlock. So there are groups like No Labels, I think is a very good group, um, that has a 12-point plan. They're, they have uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, many of whom have congressional experience. And so here are just some of their points. They, too, say we've got to reform the filibuster. Uh, we've got to have up or down votes on presidential appointments. There's there's just no reason why the president shouldn't be allowed to fill government posts. I and mean, this is craziness to have them held up for a year or two, change the legislative calendar back. This is a really important one, I think, in the hope of fostering more relationships across party lines uh, and a variety of other reforms. So there are lists in uh, in that book. Here are two wonderful books that just came out, Nora Ornstein and uh, Thomas Mann. It's even worse than it looks. And this wonderful book by Mickey Edwards, a Republic, former Republican congressman from o- Oklahoma, The Parties Versus the People, uh, How to Turn Republicans and Democrats into Americans. So if you're interested in these policy changes, I think these are the most important things we can do. In the long run, we have to make some big legal and procedural changes to how we run elections, how Congress works. Those have to be changed. Uh, but that's not my expertise, and those are very hard to do because any of these changes is going to help one party more than the other. Which means that uh, the, the, the party that's disadvantaged is going to fight like hell. So, this is going to be very hard. I have a website at civilpolitics.org where I've got some political scientists working with me. We're trying to sort through all these proposals and figure out what, where is there some evidence about what might work? What might work? It's, and it turns out to be much harder than I thought uh, because the political scientists are very divided. There are a few, they all agree on filibuster reform, but there are many others that they, they, just, they don't agree. So, it's hard to tell. Uh, so, we have to do some fundamental institutional reforms. But I'm going to stop there because, again, that's not my expertise. I'm a a social psychologist, and I study morality. uh, And I work much more at the individual level about human psychology. And I think there are some things that we can do as individuals... We can't reform Washington. It, you know, It'll happen gradually over decades maybe, but in the next four years, I think there's no chance for, for fundamental reforms in Washington. But we can do things ourselves. Here's a wonderful quote from, Julie, from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars but in ourselves that we are underlings. Um, this is one that every professor holds dear uh, because when students come to see him and they say, well, I got a low grade on the test because the test was unfair, we pull this out and say no. Um, <laughs> so I've rewritten it for our present situation the fault, dear voters, is not entirely in our politicians and institutions, but in ourselves, that we are too righteous, too quick to demonize. And so this takes us to the last part of the talk. Uh, let's see. So uh, this is uh, the, the book that I just published uh, in March. The American cover, uh, uh, designed by Stefan Sagmeister, a famous graphic designer, does a wonderful job. Of showing what it feels like to be an American these days. Uh, This is the British cover. The Brits have their own sense of humor. And um, again, for those on the radio, the I is replaced by a middle finger. So the book is. I tried to make it very uh, well, not exactly simple. Uh, I'm I'm an intuitionist. I believe that intuitions come first. Uh, uh, Things don't. We don't change our minds unless they feel right unless something feels right. So I tried to make the book very intuitively graspable, and I found that I could reduce moral psychology to three principles. And if you understand these three principles, you understand moral psychology. So here they are. I'll just go through them very briefly. Intuitions come first, strategic reasoning uh, second. Uh, so there is a common idea in, uh, in philosophy uh, that the, the mind is divided into parts. Uh, there is reason is our true nature. This is what Plato said. He gave us the metaphor that the mind or soul is like a charioteer steering two unruly horses, the passions. So this is a common idea in philosophy, and of course we have to calm the passions and appeal to reason. And if we can reason with each other, then we will get good behavior. I strongly disagree. I was much more influenced by the philosopher David Hume, Uh, who wrote one of his his most famous passages, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. So it's a very different metaphor for the mind. Uh, Reason is a servant. But I think the best way to think about reason as a servant is not a butler, but a press secretary. This is Robert Gibbs, Obama's first press secretary. Very smart guy. They're partners. He's not a butler. He's a partner. But what's his job? He doesn't formulate policy, he justifies it. And you can go to as many press conferences as you want. What you will never see is an argument from the press saying, but aren't you contradicting what you just said last week? And the press secretary will never say, oh gosh, you're right, I better go tell the president. Okay, that cannot happen. Because that's not the way the system is set up. He's a justificatory organ. That's his job, to justify. And I believe that is, that is uh, the way our reasoning works. That's the way our reasoning evolved. Uh, I'll just read a short passage from, from my book, from Chapter 4, um, illustrating, I mean, the, the, the chapter goes, shows you all the experimental studies. This is more of a narrative form to explain this principle, that intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. This is from a section called Reasoning and Google Can Take You Wherever You Want to Go. When my son Max was three years old, I discovered that he's allergic to must. When I would tell him that he must get dressed so that we can go to school, and he loved school, he'd scowl and whine. The word must is like a little verbal handcuff, and it it triggered in him the desire to squirm free. The word can is so much nicer. Can you get dressed so that we can go to school? To be certain that these two words were really as different as night and day, I tried a little experiment. After dinner one night, I said, in a very level voice, I just said, Max, you must eat ice cream now. And he said, but I don't want to. (laughs) And then right away I said, again, level voice, Max, you can have ice cream now if you want. I want some. The difference between can and must is the key to understanding the profound effects of self-interest on reasoning. It's also the key to understanding many of the strangest beliefs in UFO abductions, quack medical treatments, and conspiracy theories. The social psychologist Tom Gilovich studies the cognitive mechanisms of strange beliefs. His simple formulation is that when we want to believe something, we ask ourselves, can I believe it? We ask, can I believe it? And then we send reasoning out to search for evidence. And if reasoning, our trusty servant, finds even a single piece of evidence to support the belief... Comes back, says, yes, boss, you can believe it. Here's permission. You're done. You stop thinking. Because if somebody asks, why do you believe that? You can just pull it out of your, you know, say, ah, because I read it, you know, or there was this guy who, or whatever. You've got a reason. In contrast, when we don't want to believe something, we ask ourselves, must I believe it? We then search for contrary evidence. We send our trusty reasoning out. Find me an escape hatch. Find me a reason to doubt this claim. And it almost always succeeds. Comes back, here boss, here's what you need. So if somebody asks why you don't believe it, you just pull this out and say, here's why I don't believe it. Psychologists now have file cabinets full of findings on motivated reasoning, showing the many tricks people use to reach the conclusions they want to reach. When subjects in an experiment are told uh, that a test that they just took, an intelligence test, gave them a low score, and then they're given a bunch of articles that they could read to learn more about this, they choose to read the articles that clearly indicate from the title that they challenge the validity of IQ tests. But subjects who are told they got a high test, they pick out the articles that clearly indicate that they show how valid and important IQ tests are. In another study, subjects are brought in, these are psychology students, and they're learning about research methodology, so they're given a study, that shows a link between caffeine consumption and breast cancer. And, you know, it was a study with, you know, 300 people in it and various methods. And they're asked, what do you think about these methods? Are these methods legit, or are there problems with the experimental and research methods? Who do you think finds flaws in the methods? Coffee drinkers, right. All coffee drinkers? Female coffee drinkers think... That uh this is a terrible study, the sample size is too small, you really can't there's all kinds of other reasons and you know etc. etc. Because they're they're asking, must I believe it? And the answer is no. Whereas other people are saying, oh, you know, I'm reading it, I okay, can I you know they're not motivated. If you're motivated to escape, you escape. That's the point. The difference between a mind asking, can I believe it and must I believe it Uh, is so profound that it even influences visual perception. Uh, so in one study, uh, subjects are told that uh, they're going to look at a screen and th- images are going to flash up. And they press a button as soon as they see a letter. Every time you see a letter and press a button quickly, you get a point that translates into a nickel or a dime, whatever. Uh, so if you're, if you're going to get a letter, money, you're going to get money for seeing letters. What's that? B. But in the other group, they're paid for spotting numbers. What's that? 13. Okay? So we see what we want to see, as long as there's some ambiguity. It's not that we can make stuff up entirely, but if there's some ambiguity, we see what we want to see. And, of course, in moral and political matters, there's always ambiguity, so we can see whatever we want to see. Okay, so if people can literally see what they want to see, is it any wonder that scientific studies often fail to persuade the general public? There is no such thing as a scientific study that you must believe. It is always possible to question the methods... Find an alternative interpretation of the data, or if all else fails, just question the ideology and integrity of the researchers. And now that we all have access to search engines on our cell phones, we can call up a team of supportive scientists for almost any of the uh, uh, for almost any belief we want. Uh, if you want to believe whatever you want to believe about the causes of global warming or whether a fetus can feel pain, just Google your belief, and you'll find evidence either way. Science is a smorgasbord, and Google will guide you to the study that's right for you. So. Uh, the conclusion here—that's uh, all I'll say—about uh, intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. Um, so, as you see, things like the village square don't—you don't. You, you don't just, so, there are a lot of events where people are, come together for debate. Let's dialogue. Let's talk. If you just bring people together to explain their positions, you don't get very far because reasoning isn't like that. But if you create relationships first, you open hearts, open hearts, open minds. Then you say, "Can I believe it? Can I believe that this person that I'm eating with is sincere?" Can I, can I believe that what he's saying is true? Uh, so let's move on to uh, point number two. There's more to morality than harm and fairness. Uh, this, is the, this is part two of the, of the book. I'll have to go quickly over this because it's a long story, so I'm, I'm shortening it here, but you can... Um, I have a TED Talk on this if you want to get the fuller story. Bottom line is that my, my research is on what are the foundations of morality. What, what did evolution build into us uh, so that we can then have these interesting and complex and variable moral systems. The metaphor is, is that the righteous mind is like a tongue with six taste receptors. We have these taste buds. The taste buds don't dictate what foods we like. Some people like Mexican, some like Indian, some like French, but we all have the same taste buds. So uh, the taste buds are care, uh, care, compassion. We're all mammals here. We have brains and bodies that have evolved to care for children. So that's one foundation. Uh, fairness. Uh, Fairness reciprocity, uh, uh, another extremely important foundation, especially for politics. Um, There's an interesting difference between proportionality. Uh, What we find is that conservatives value fairness as proportionality. That is, you should get what you deserve, and if you take something without putting in, you're you're a cheater, you're a slacker, you're a free rider. Whereas liberals are more focused on equality. Fairness is equal is equality. Uh, The third foundation is liberty, liberty and oppression, especially especially in the United States. It was our founding uh, moral principle. Uh, The fourth is issues of loyalty and betrayal. There are some animals that can work in packs, uh, but we are the only creatures on the planet that can uh, come together in very large groups and work together as a team for distant and difficult ends. Uh, We can do military, uh, and it's only because we evolved for war that we can do sports. Sports is just play war, of course. Uh, And we love sports, we love tribalism and groupishness so much that we invented fandom, especially here in Tallahassee. You guys are crazy. Uh, That's the fourth foundation. The fifth is authority, uh, respect for authority and deference. Here we see displays of respect or deference in two very closely related species, humans and chimpanzees. Um, So we have a long evolutionary history for deference and respect for authority. Big differences left and right. The left these days is, is much more ambivalent or negative towards authority and hierarchy than is the right. And last, sanctity and degradation. Uh, this is an image called the Allegory of Chastity, showing the Virgin Mary locked up in an amethyst circle with... Uh, with a fountain of pure water flowing beneath her, guarded by lions. I mean, you know, it's unmistakable. This is the allegory of chastity. Uh, and on the, on the right, especially the religious right, uh, this is a very, very important part of their morality. On the left, there's a very different view of sexuality. This is from Madonna's book, Sex. Uh, this is a bumper sticker I saw in Charlottesville. Your body may be a temple, but mine's an amusement park. <laughs> so, again, just big left-right differences in, and, and You know, abortion, euthanasia, all of these things turn on the idea, is the body a temple that we must respect and not just manipulate how we want, or... You know, you do what you want with your body. There's nothing, it's just, you know, it's, it's yours. You do what you want with it. Uh, so these are the six psychological foundations of morality. There are more, but these are the six most important. And what we found, I have a website at yourmorals.org where we've uh, gotten responses from a quarter million people so far. And when people come to the website and register, they say that they are either, you know, very liberal, liberal, slightly liberal, moderate, slightly conservative, very conservative. So they place themselves along that scale, or they can say libertarian. And what we find is that for people who are very conservative, all six foundations are almost equally important. They value all of them. They really value loyalty, authority, and sanctity. So what we find is that conservatives have, in a sense, a broader moral palette. They they use all six of these moral taste buds. Whereas on the left, the most important is care questions about harm, violence, suffering, uh, cruelty, cruelty to animals, cruelty to children. The left is extremely sensitive to violence and suffering. Uh, of course, they care about fairness and liberty. Everybody cares about uh, violence, fairness, and liberty. Everybody does. This graph is a little bit unfair to liberals in that here I've graphed fairness as proportionality. Had I gra- uh, included our questions about equality, it would be sloped the other way. But I think proportionality is really the, the sort of the origin of, of our ideas about fairness. So, uh, and liberty. These questions are are more towards economic liberty, not sexual liberty. Anything about sexual liberty, the left then suddenly says, you know, yes, that's very important. So, my point is that the left has what you might call a three foundation morality, within which care is the most important. The right has a six foundation morality, in which actually care is actually the least important on our on our scale. Uh, And if you see this, now you can understand a lot of the weirdness that goes on. If you look at the buttons that the campaigns are pushing... They usually correspond to one of these six foundations. So let's look at two of the advertisements that have been identified as lies. So here's the one: uh, a steel worker, former steel worker. Uh, you know, everything was good at her plant, and then Bain Capital came in and reorganized us and looted us, and the company shut down, and we lost our health care, and then my wife died of cancer. So basically, you know, not directly saying, but sort of indicating: Mitt Romney killed my wife, and the, it's you know, they're cruel. Those Republicans, they're just. Cruel. They don't care for people. So it's care, 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 care. That that is the most important of the of the pitches. Also, fairness is equality, but care is especially common on the left. And uh, Politifact rated this ad as false. Uh, now here's one from the Romney campaign. This one's much worse. This is the one where, uh, and you know, Bill Clinton addressed this in his, in his speech, uh, where because some Republican governors had requested changes to the welfare, uh, the welfare act so that to have more flexibility, uh, Obama said yes. And then the Romney campaign ran, the, ran this ad showing people working, but describing how Obama gutted the welfare act. And now you don't have to show up for work anymore. They just send you your check. So this is very direct. This is like putting a you know salt on the salt receptor on your tongue. This is cheaters, slackers, free riders, and I, I think you know. Well, I don't want to. I don't know. Anyway, there's a obviously welfare. There's a racial component here that I think is being uh, uh, used as well. But the point is, it's blatantly, blatantly untrue. But it's an attempt to say those Democrats, they just love to take your money and give it to lazy bloodsuckers who don't do anything. They just get their check. And PolitiFact rated this pants-on-fire lie. Uh, This is one of the worst ones out there. But again, you understand what the political parties are doing. They're pressing the taste buds. They're pressing the buttons that they most want to use. So that's all I'll say about principle number two. There's more to morality than harm and fairness. Lastly, morality binds and blinds. Uh, this is the third principle of moral psychology. And the way I see it, um, you know we often hear about the great wonders of the world. and I picture the Grand Canyon, and the Grand Canyon is really amazing visually, but it really isn't puzzling. You just take uh, air and and uh, you know, wind and um, uh, and and sandstone and water, and just wait a long time and you get that. It's really not hard to explain. Uh, what's really amazing is that there were people living in the Grand Canyon, um, and then, in a very short time, uh, you get the rise of cities. This is really the most amazing thing that's ever happened on the planet, is that this hunter-gatherer species living in the woods and sticks and savannas for hundreds of thousands of years, for millions of years, suddenly, from out of nowhere, they build Babylonia, and, and they build Rome, and they build Tenochtitlan. And these were not built by families. These were not built by a thousand brothers and sisters. These were built by people who are not family. How did humans ever learn to cooperate? in huge, huge groups to build gigantic cities. There are animals that cooperate on the planet, but they're all sisters. The bees, ants, and termites are all sisters, um, or sisters and brothers in one case. Um, so genetically, it makes sense. Uh, that's a great trick by evolution. You can get siblings to work together, at least not in humans so much, but in, you know, in the bees and ants, they can get siblings to work together. But, uh, but we humans are the only ones that can fight wars and do sports and, and do all these things. We can cooperate. What's our secret? How do we do it? It's not kinship. It's in part the psychology of sacredness. Uh, now, I'm of the view, many people argue over whether religion is, a, is an adaptation or is it this terrible, evil virus that attacked us, according to Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. Um, I'm of the view that religion is adaptive. Religion evolved, or our religious minds evolved. Uh, religious groups do better than non-religious groups. Religious groups can trust each other. They can work together. And part of our religious psychology is we've got this amazing ability to designate something as sacred. It could be a rock or a tree or a book. It could be an ancestor. It could be a man who, had, who, who did special things that others cannot do. But once we identify something as sacred, we circle around it. In traditional religions, it's literally circling around. There's just something very primal about circling around. And if you go to the Burning Man Festival, they burn this gigantic effigy, and then they circle around. It's just very primal to circle around. So these are Muslims circling around the Kaaba in Mecca. Uh, We circle around the flag. It allows us to trust each other. It's a banner that unites us. And we circle around the heroes of our team. So on the left, uh, Martin Luther King is sacralized. Uh, You don't hear very many Martin Luther King jokes. Uh, the Bible and the flag tend to be sacralized on the right. People get very, very angry uh, if the Bible or the flag are mistreated on the right. On the left, not necessarily. On the left, like at Occupy Wall Street, for example, you do see American flags, but I took photographs. I photographed everything there. Many of the American flags had writing on them or they were on tables or on the ground. So the flag is there, but it's not treated with reverence on the left as it is on the right. So each team sacralizes certain objects, and then it gets mad as hell when the other side disrespects its sacred objects. Uh, once you have the psychology of sacredness going on, you then have the idea that anybody who leaves our team is a heretic, a traitor, or an apostate. These people are worse than the enemy. Your enemies are bad, but someone who was on your team uh, and then leaves, that person is much, much worse. Uh, so it's as though a moral force field engages, and uh, this is an electromagnet, and when you put a current through a magnet, you get these lines of flux, and suddenly everything, all the little uh, iron ore bits there, they have to all line up along these invisible lines of flux, these invisible lines of magnetism. And this is what's happened to us as a nation. As our political uh, parties polarized into morally distinct groups that had held different things sacred, this was a new development in our history, really got going in the 80s and 90s, uh, it led, it coincided with a change in generations, much more moralistic, much more self-righteous, much more righteous, and we were all sorting ourselves into more ideologically homogeneous groups. So this is what's happened to us. Uh, that's all I'll say about morality binds and blinds. Um, I'll leave you with the question of how can we regain our sight if it's morality that has bound us together into liberal and conservative teams and then blinded us, made it made us unable to see, how can we regain our sight? Now, I'm I'm a researcher. I'm an ivory tower guy. Uh, I'm offering some suggestions that should work in theory. Um, I have no practical experience, but in theory, uh, what I'm telling you is that we're not going to get out of this by reasoning with each other, by trying to convince each other that our side is right. That is not going to work. You need to focus on indirect methods. Stick with the principle that intuitions come first, and if you can create strong intuitive and emotional experiences, those will those can open people's minds, those can break the, the, the break the deadlock. The most important thing to do is foster relationships. Um, and in everything you do, know the psychology, know where the buttons are, know where these ancient cooperation buttons are. We as a species, we're very, very good at cooperating in order to compete. We can come together, as we did at 9-11, we can come together and then we can split and we can forgive each other and come together, we're very good at this. So know where those buttons are. Having superordinate goals and identities is a big button. Uh, sharing food is another. I hope you recognize that what I've just described is the village square, right? I mean, that's why you guys are here, that's what you do. So, um, and, and, you, know, so I, you know, you guys really have a winning formula here and, and I would predict in theory that it should work. And I'll end by basically just uh, asking you, uh, let's talk about it, uh, what works? What have you found in your experience as you've developed developed this unique social experiment? And what do you think we can actually do as individuals, uh, assuming that it's going to be very hard to change Washington? What can we as citizens do? Thank you.
1: Thank you, John.
3: Hey there, it's Vanessa again, your podcast host. This is all so fascinating to me, and I'm so thankful to John for his work and his commitment to sharing it with the world. Don't forget, next week's episode is a continuation of this program. Please join us for part two, which is the Q&A portion of the event, and you'll also get to hear some reflections from audience members who were at this program, plus a little more of my recent chat with Liz. Before we close out, I'll share one of my reflections from listening to this in episode 1 of the Village Square cast, which is sort of like an introduction to the Village Square. Liz Joyner mentions the play Hamilton and how it sort of represents the feeling of what the Village Square tries to do. When she said that, I hadn't seen Hamilton and embarrassingly didn't really even know the story there, but now that's changed. Thanks to Disney Plus, my kids and I are completely addicted. We sing the music around the house all day. And we've been so interested in the history behind it that we also watched a History Channel documentary about it. And one of the things I love the most about the experience of watching this and learning more about Hamilton and the Founding Fathers and that time in our history is the part about how they didn't all agree. They had opposing opinions and agendas and ideas. And look at what they created that came out of that. So just a reminder of the brilliance of how our government was set up and that it depends on checks and balances and depends on us continuing to do this hard work of democracy together. And so when I listen to John talk about why we are the way that we are, and how that's actually really great and critical for our society, I find myself appreciating our differences more, and thinking about how we can get back on track with working together and using our differences to our advantage. And that has me circling all the way back around to the Village Square, and why I love every single one of their programs. And that's also why I feel like I've hit the lottery. I wasn't here for most of these programs, so getting to experience them now and make them available to you. I'm just so thankful for this opportunity, and I hope these programs are helpful to you as well. For more, please subscribe to the Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website at villagesquare.us squarecast. That way you'll see part two of this program and other episodes when they come out. You can find the show notes page for this episode with links to resources mentioned at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to keep up to date with all of Village Square's activities at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to The Righteous Mind with Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast.